0: Well, as the children are being dismissed to their junior church program, let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 32, beginning at verse 1, which means um, since we're in chapter 32, we're no longer in chapter 31. I know that's deeply, deeply profound statement. As you're turning there, with all of the wonderful announcements, I just want to put a, a highlight or an asterisk also on the men's group Saturday morning, August, 8, uh, August 19th. Um, we're going to be having Ryan Johnson as our speaker. He is um, connected to a group called the Alliance Defense Fund, uh, which is a group that helps churches and Christians with the legal onslaught coming against Christianity in the United States. You all know that we're not on the right side many times of the legal system, Um, so there's a group that... Basically, defends legal rights and that kind of thing. And so, Ryan Johnson is going to be here talking about that and also, um, you know, highlighting his ministry and his organization, which is becoming more and more uh, important in these last days. The title of our message this morning is Our Divine Escorts. We are right in the middle of a verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis. We are in that section of the book where God is dealing with this man, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are big deals because through them, the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation, was born. That is a very special nation because God has purposed to bless the world through that nation. Without that nation, we would not have the scripture, uh, we would not have the savior, and we would not have the coming kingdom. And so that's why we're meticulously going through this, it's uh, foundational to everything that we have in God. Jacob has been 20 years up north there, that circle up top, in a place called Haran. He left there empty-handed and he's come back wealthy. He left there as a single man. Now he's got two wives, two bridesmaids and 11 sons and a daughter. He has prospered in that area despite the oppression and injustice that he had to submit himself to through his uncle Laban. Jacob has left Haran. He, by divine command, is returning to the uh, what later will be called the land of Israel, Canaan, Laban does not like the fact that Jacob is left, so he pursues them there in the Transjordan Mountains. The two kind of work out in a, a, a vertical, uh, excuse me, horizontal covenant between the two. Uh, Laban says, okay, I'll go my way. Um, just don't lay a financial claim against my estate with your household idols. And I won't come in your side of the world, and I won't try to help my daughters. So it's at that point that the two groups separate. It's at that point that Haran and really Mesopotamia, where everything started, sort of uh, falls off the radar screen. Uh, Although Mesopotamia, Haran have been important thus far in the biblical story, it's at this point they sort of disappear. And the whole focus now um, is Jacob in the land of Israel. So it's kind of interesting in life. Once you get one problem fixed, there's another one right around the corner. Have you noticed that? I heard a sigh there. I think that sigh was my wife, by the way. Uh, (laughs) You get something solved and something else comes up. That's how life is. Um, Don't. Resist that. That's the pattern of God in our lives. With the Laban issue fixed, he's now got to deal with a 20-year-old problem where his brother Esau is trying to kill him. That's a pretty big problem, amen? And that is sort of a sore spot that's been festering these 20 years. Laban issue fixed. Now I've got to deal with the Esau issue. And so what you see in chapter 32 and chapter 33 is a great reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. That word uh, reconciliation is such a big deal because that's really what Christianity is about. God reconciles us unto himself through his grace. And then once we are reconciled unto God as we walk in the grace of God, that changes our perspective on life. I find myself not holding grudges the way I used to, not retaliating against people the way I used to, because that's not how God has treated me. And so as I move into this subject of reconciliation, It sort of has an impact, my vertical relationship with God, in horizontally how I treat other people. And Christianity can sort of be summed up in Romans chapter 5 where Paul explains that while we were yet enemies of God, we have been reconciled to Him. So it's not an accident that God has included two major chapters in His Word to this subject of reconciliation. You can sort of divide it up, this uh, section here between Jacob and Esau into four parts. We will just get through the first part and then maybe a little bit into the second part uh, as well. But something takes place here at a place called uh, Mahanaim, if if I'm pronouncing that right. It's a place. I'll just call it M for short. How's that? He names a place. You have the background to the naming, verse 1, and then you have the naming itself, verse 2. Notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. It says, now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God uh, met him. It's kind of interesting that once Jacob separated himself from Laban, good things started to happen. Uh, He has an angelic disclosure to him after this time of separation. The, The same thing, by the way, happened to Abraham and Lot. Abraham and Lot, all the way back in Genesis 13, verse 11, separated. It says, So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. That's Genesis 13, verse 11. And once that separation occurs, it's interesting how God started to further bless Abram. You travel down to Genesis 13, 14 through 17, and God reconfirms to Abram his promises. Genesis 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. We've studied that passage in depth. But I just want to point out that many times in the Bible, something wonderful happens subsequent to or after a separation. Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians says this. He says, therefore, come out from their midst. Speaking of being unequally yoked to godless things. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And then it mentions a blessing, and I will welcome you. I'm reminded of the great prophecies concerning Babylon of the end times. In Revelation 18, it says something very similar. It says in Revelation 18, verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. The truth of the matter is, as we walk with the Lord, there are a lot of things we need to disentangle ourselves from. There are a lot of people in my life over the years that I've just moved away from, not so much because they were doing something blatantly wicked, but they were just content to being in the same place spiritually. And that's not the Lord's design for my life. The Lord wants me to continue to grow, to to continue to develop, and if I find myself around a group of people that really have no interest in that, then perhaps it's time to separate. Some of the greatest uh, blessings that you will see transpire in your life is when you make a decision to sort of Isolate, And when I say isolate, I'm not talking about the fact that we are living in the world. We all have to live in the world. We have to have contact with unsaved people or immature people. But I don't have to yoke myself to them. I don't have to join myself to them. I don't have to put myself in some kind of situation with them, some kind of relationship with them where they are more negatively influencing me than I am positively influencing them. When we were in Genesis 13, talking about this separation between Abraham and Lot, at that time I called it through a a title of a sermon, the gift of goodbye. There's no shame in separating in certain circumstances. There's no shame in saying goodbye. And when you say goodbye, it's not like you're saying you're no longer part of God's story. It's just they are no longer part of your story. And we kind of look at that kind of mindset as, oh, that's, uh, that, that, that's an unloving thing to do. Um, and before you do it, you have to weigh the options very carefully. But I'm here to argue that there's a point in the Christian life where you have to separate from certain things and certain influences to become everything that God has called you to become. The Bible has a lot to say about this. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, it says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of too many friends... Be careful about building up those friends lists on Facebook, I guess. A man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a, than a brother. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25, it says, Do not associate with a man given to anger. Or go with a hot-tempered man. Well, why not? Or you will learn his ways and you will find a snare for yourself. You know, there's a lot of times uh, I remember back in college I was with one of my friends and I started to and I'm not proud of this. I started to sort of use a lot of profanity. And he finally confronted me. He goes, "Why why you didn't used to cuss like this. All of a sudden you're cussing a lot. What what's what's the issue?" Well, as I started to think about it, I was hanging around people that used a lot of profanity. So I started to kind of use it myself. That's sort of what bad associations will do for us. We kind of get into these friendships and relationships with people, you know, sort of thinking that we're going to help them. But sometimes they can more negatively influence you than you can more positively influence them. And the Bible says in our walk of sanctification... Be careful about those associations. I wonder how many blessings God has for us that have been withheld because we haven't followed the biblical practice of separation the way we should. And I just find it very interesting that uh, uh, Jacob receives this great revelation from God with these angels after he had separated himself from the negative influence of Lot or uh, Laban, excuse me. Continuing on with verse 1, it says, Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. This is uh, sort of interesting because angels are only mentioned twice in the book of Genesis. The first time they are mentioned is in uh, Genesis chapter 28 and verse 12. You remember Jacob was at Bethel and he saw what in the vision, what is called Jacob's ladder. You remember? It says in Genesis 28, 12, it says he had a dream and behold a ladder was set on the earth and, it, and its top was reaching to heaven and behold the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. That's the first reference to angels. Here is the second reference to angels in the book of Genesis. And other than those two references, to my knowledge, um, those are the only references to angels in the entire book of Genesis. And it's interesting that the revelation concerning the angels brackets Jacob leaving Canaan and then coming back to Canaan. He left Canaan to go to Haran very shortly thereafter, and then he, 20 years later, returned from Haran back to the land of Canaan, later to be called the land of Israel. 20 years later, and that experience of leaving and coming back is bracketed by angels. I would argue this, that the land of Israel if the only reference to angels in the book of Genesis occurs as he's leaving and coming back, angels must be pretty important, obviously, but the land of Israel must be important as well. Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his Genesis commentary says, Furthermore, and behold the angels of God, In the book of Genesis, the phrase, the angels of God is found only twice. Here, he's commenting on Genesis 28 and in Genesis 32 verse 1. And it is significant as to the circumstances when it appears. Here in verse 12, the angels of God are mentioned as Jacob departs from the land and in chapter 32, verse 1, they appear again as Jacob is returning to the, to the land. Now here, obviously, I'm speaking of the good angels, because we were when we were in Genesis 6, about, I don't know, 30 years ago, I guess, we talked there about demons. And this is not a statement about all angels. This is a statement about the good angels. The good angels show up as he leaves the land. The good angels show up as he comes back to the land. The only manifestation we have of angels in that sense in the entire book of Genesis brackets the land of Israel, which means that the land of Israel is a big deal to God. It's like God is saying to Jacob, I'm going to, through divine escorts, escort you out of the land for 20 years and I'm going to bring you right back into this land. The whole way you're going to have a divine escort in and out. The land of Israel is a tract of real estate that God bequeathed unconditionally to the patriarch Abram, who later became Abraham, in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. It's a chunk of real estate, and this map really doesn't even do it justice because it starts all the way in modern-day Egypt and goes all the way up to modern-day Iraq. It probably goes from the Nile to the Euphrates. And that is a chunk of real estate that the nation of Israel, as you can see from the map here, the darker area even modern Israel, has never fully occupied. And this becomes the basis for our belief in a future millennial kingdom where God is going to make good on this promise. And it's sort of interesting that when you talk like this to people, they just say, ah, land sh- shmand. I mean, who who cares? I, I was trying to talk to one christian about this about the land of israel and he said well brother you know i'm a new testament christian i'm like well, see you throw out the old testament what do you mean you're a new testament christian well i i'm just focused on the great spiritual realities of the sermon on the mount or whatever and I, i don't get myself bogged down in land and real estate well, my simple question is, if you can't trust God to keep his word with land, how can you trust any other promise he's ever made in the whole book? Land of Israel to God, it, it almost means nothing to the world community. They look at it as just something that has to be parcelled away land in exchange for peace. It's like a real estate deal of some kind, it's like building a hotel or something. They, they look at that as if it has no significance, but I'm here to tell you that to God, it's a big deal. In fact, here is what the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verse 12, says about that land. It says, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even until the end of the year. So should I care about land and real estate? Well, if you want to have the mind of God, you should, because God says he, he cares for it around the clock and watches over it all of the time. And this may be the reason as to why Jacob is escorted by angels out of the land, and 20 years later he's escorted by angels back into the land. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, pastor, the next thing you're going to tell us is that we all have guardian angels. I mean, you're not going to tell us that, are you? Well, I'm not going to tell you that. The Bible tells you that you have guardian angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, Are they, that's angels, not ministering spirits? sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Here, salvation is our future glorification. In other words, if you're a blood-bought saint, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you're on your way to heaven, anybody here in that category? I hope so. Then God has dispatched angels... for the service for the purpose rather of rendering service to those of us that will inherit salvation. Does a Christian have guardian angels? Do they have a guardian angel? Can you know his name? Um I don't know if that's possible, but I'm here to tell you that the Bible teaches that you have guardian angels. The protective care of God. Matthew uh, chapter 8 and verse 10 of children. Jesus says something very interesting when he's talking about not causing a child to stumble, he says, "...see that ye do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels..." Angels of these children, in other words. "...their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who was in heaven." There's an interesting account that takes place in Acts 12 where Peter is arrested... And the church is praying that Peter would be released from prison. And they're praying so hard that they did not take into account that Peter was right outside the door. Because God had already answered their prayer request. They just didn't realize it yet. It's like, you guys don't need to pray about this anymore. God just answered Peter is outside the door, and I think it's Rhoda. She goes back and informs the church that, hey, no, prayer prayer meeting's over. Prayer request has been answered. And they sort of start to mock her. They sort of start to say, Well, Peter's not outside the door. And they make this statement, they kept saying, It is his angel. Now I realize that they're saying that in in jest and ridicule, but the idea that it's his angel has to come from some source of truth. And that becomes another verse that you can use to show that we actually do have guardian angels. I mean, there and I can't see angels. You can't see them unless God shows them to you. But there have been many times in my life where I think back and I say, you know, I should have been injured there. I mean, literally injured. I should have been physically hurt there, and yet it didn't happen. And I would put that up to the fact that I'm an inheritor of salvation and God has dispatched, I think in many cases, his angels to protect me. That's why you have that great statement that the servant's life on earth is virtually uh, invincible until his time is over because God protects us. Many times he can protect us directly. Uh, Other times he can protect, protect us through angelic manifestations. This is what Jacob saw. And by the way, that should encourage you greatly because if I'm reading my Bible right, Satan, Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4 and verses 7 and 8, deceived a third of the angels into rebelling with him now according to my old math that means how many are on our side two-thirds so why should i get discouraged as a christian when number one i've got an omniscient omnipotent omnipresent god on my side and number two i've got two-thirds of the angels on my side See, we're, we're focused so much many times on spiritual warfare, rightfully so, uh, putting on the full armor of God that we may extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked one, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and we get so focused on that that we can sort of build up the enemy in our minds to a level that he really doesn't deserve, Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 17, of Satan, God says, on the day you were created. Satan is a created being. And as such, he is not omniscient, all-knowing. He is not omnipresent, all-powerful. He, or everywhere at once, omnipresence. He is not omnipotent, all-powerful. Whereas your relationship with God, God is all of those things. He's omniscient, he knows everything, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at once. I mean, this is not even much of a contest when you think about it that way. And if that weren't enough, of all of the angels, and if I'm understanding my Bible right, there are myriads of angels, 10,000 times 10,000 the Bible says. Of all of those innumerable angels, two-thirds are with me. Only a potential one-third can be against me. And so you understand these rich truths about angelology, the doctrine of angels, and life doesn't really seem that overwhelming anymore. I mean, we're clearly on the winning side of history. Yeah, Satan can cause a lot of problems, but... It's incomparable to the problems that Satan himself is going to experience at the hands of an all-powerful creator on his day of judgment. So verse 1, it says, Now Jacob went on his way. The angels of God met him. And then you go down to verse 2, and it says, God said when he, that's Jacob, saw them... This is God's camp. So he named that place uh, Mahanaim, if I'm pronouncing that right. So you'll notice that Jacob saw the angels. That's that's abnormal. Angels are of a different constitution than we are, and that's why we can't see them. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, I quoted it a little earlier, calls them ministering spirits. And yet there are times in the biblical account where God pulls back the veil and allows a mere mortal or a mere human being to actually see angels. Uh, something like this happened with Elisha and his servant. It says over in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In other words, the servant is pushing the panic button because the enemy is coming in. And so the servant is basically saying to Elisha, why aren't you worried like I'm worried? And Elisha says back to the servant, don't don't sweat it. That's a loose translation. Don't, don't sweat it. Because those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Well, what does that mean? That's a strange statement. Verse 17 of 2 Kings 6 says, Then Elisha prayed and said, notice that the servant couldn't see this until uh, he asked God to grant the servant vision into the invisible angelic realm then elijah prayed and said "O lord i pray open his eyes that he may see and the lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around elisha If, if you could see what i see you wouldn't be worried So open his eyes that he can see, Lord, I pray. And for a moment, the Lord honored that prayer request. The servant was able to see what was happening. And what did he see? He didn't see uh, the enemies of God being defeated or the enemies of Satan being defeated. Sorry about that. What he saw was complete and total victory. He saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. And it says here, all around Elisha. I believe this, that if God were to answer similarly this kind of prayer request for us and we could actually see into the spiritual realm, that that we wouldn't panic about anything. Because not only do you have an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God on your side, you also have on your side two-thirds of the angelic realm whose... One of their major purposes is to aid those and to assist those who will inherit salvation. And as Jacob is seeing this, that's why he names this special place the way he does. Verse 2, Jacob said, when he saw them, this is God's camp. And that's why he gave it this particular name. Now, it's interesting that in Hebrew, the normal word for hosts, angels, is not used here. A slightly different word is used. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, Genesis 32, verse 2, records Jacob's response. And Jacob said, when he saw them, this is God's host. In Hebrew, the word host is um, uh, Makadne. and what he was saying was that this was God's camp. In other words, he really doesn't use the word host to describe angels. He used the word camp. Arnold Fruchenbaum says this is not the normal Hebrew word for host, but rather it is God's camp. This led to the naming of the place and he called the name of the place Mahat Naim, a dual form of the prior word, literally meaning two camps. The two camps were Jacob's camp and God's camp where the angels were. That's why this place got named this. From kind of an abnormal use of the word angel, all Jacob did is take it and pluralize it. In fact, as you look at that name at the end of verse 2, that's what that I am ending means. Im um, in Hebrew is talking about plural. So like in English, we say S or ES at the end of a noun to pluralize it. In Hebrew, they just add that I am ending. So you'll read in the Bible about the cherubim. Cherub, type of angel, one, cherubim, plural. More than one. And so what Jacob is doing is he's taking that different name for angel and he's pluralizing it and he's calling it camps, my camp and God's camp. And so that's how this place got its name. It was a a special place where Jacob recognized that God was doing something very special in his life. He was giving him divine escorts. Out of the land and twenty years later in the land, one of the things that's interesting about angels is Jesus I think it's in Luke 20 around verses thirty five and thirty six he says, although angels are created beings, they haven't been around forever, they never die, so you don't get the idea that angels reproduce um, they don't you know they're not ba- we don't have baby angels. And by the way, when you die, you don't become an angel. I realize that ruins a lot of television series, Touched by an Angel, all that stuff. You know, you don't become an angel. Angels are separate than humans. But it's interesting to me that they don't die, meaning they don't have to go into retirement. They don't get old. They don't get fatigued. They're always on the job. Was there a time in which the angels were not? Yes. Jesus himself spoke them into existence. Colossians chapter 1. But since the point of their creation, they continue on. Their number continues on. It doesn't decrease. It doesn't increase. We just know a third of their colleagues lost their position of privilege in heaven because they rebelled with Satan, an angel, against God. But it's a wonderful thing to know that two-thirds are on our side. Divine escorts. I'm not here promising that everything in your life as a result is going to be easy. There are times where God allows into our lives. He, as in the case of Job, he lowers the hedge of protection around us. You know, that's what frustrated Satan with Job is uh, Satan said, well, everything you touch in his life, you bless. You put a hedge of protection around him. Lower the hedge of protection and he will curse you to your face. And God said, go for it. But he put a leash on him. He said, you can't kill him. You'll see all this in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 2. So I believe there are times in our lives where God lowers the hedge of protection. But even when the hedge of protection is lowered and God allows things into our lives that are difficult, it has to be first filtered through his grace and filtered through his sovereignty. So I'm not here promising that everything that happens in your life is going to be easy. What I'm saying is when when you get to heaven and God shows you the big picture, you're probably going to be stunned at how many things He protected you from that you couldn't even see. It reminds me of that conversation that Jesus had with Peter. Remember that in Luke's Gospel? I think it's Luke 21. Simon, Simon, Satan has requested permission to sift you as wheat. That's a pretty scary thing to tell somebody. But I have prayed for you. Makes sure you kind of think, you know, Lord, the next time you're boasting about me, if you are, could you not do it in front of Satan? Because <laughs> I, I enjoy the easy life much better than I enjoy the difficult life. But this is the subject called angelology, the doctrine of angels. Um, and this is what Jacob, Jacob saw. And so this whole area that he was in is now called camps. God's camp, angelic camp, and my camp because of this encounter with these uh, angels. Arnold Fruchtenbaum um, writes this. And by the way, the, here's where Maha Naim is. He, it's in the Transjordan. Not far from there, he entered into that vertical, excuse me, horizontal agreement with Laban. That situation is resolved. He continues to Maha Naim and now you know a little bit about why that little area there got that particular name. It's kind of interesting that as you go through the Bible, the rest of the Bible is not going to re-explain itself. It's something you have to sort of pick up at the beginning. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says in later history, Maha Naim became a border town between the tribes of Manasseh and Gad. Joshua 13, and it became the capital of Israel under ish Basheth, 2 Samuel 2, verse 8. Mahanaim was the city which David fled from Absalom, 2 Samuel 17. It was made a district capital under Solomon, 1 Kings 4. And as you go through the Bible, it will never re-explain the foundation that's laid in the book of Genesis. It just sort of assumes that we know that, which makes the book of Genesis a big deal. That's why we're crawling through the book of Genesis as slowly as we're moving, because if you do not understand the book of Genesis, you really can't understand the rest of the Bible, because the book of Genesis will lay a foundation. And once that foundation is laid, suddenly the rest of Scripture starts to make sense. I mean, if you don't understand the book of Genesis, you can't even understand your need for a Savior. I mean, our whole reasoning for understanding a need for a Savior is something went terribly wrong in the book of Genesis. It's called Genesis uh, chapter 3. And if you're not convinced that our forebears sinned in Eden... And we are enmeshed in a world of sin where cre- creation itself has been corrupted and our lives are characterized by constant sin terminated by death. You have no understanding for reaching out to Jesus as the life preserver. The life preserver doesn't make any sense to you unless you realize you're drowning. And you don't realize you're drowning until you read the book of Genesis. This is why Satan, I believe, has worked so hard to attack the book of Genesis. If the book of Genesis is removed from the thinking of the population, which in our case here in the West, North America, Satan has been largely successful. People look at the book of Genesis as if it's just some sort of fiction or fairy tale then the salvation of Jesus and what he offers us is not very appetizing. It doesn't make sense. We, we start to look at Jesus as an option. You can't look at Jesus as an option, though, if you understand the book of Genesis, because he's the only solution. The solution starts getting announced in Genesis 3, verse 15. The rest of Scripture is simply amplifying um, on that. Psalm 11, verse 3, says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundation isn't right, the rest of the house, it doesn't matter how nice the house is the rest of the house is built on a wrong foundation. That's why Jesus all of the time is talking about the foundation. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about one man that built his house on the sand and another man built his house on the rock. And he talked about, not if, but when the storms come, one house will be toppled, the other house will stay. Well, what's the whole issue there? It's a foundational issue. Paul, when he is describing the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, the Bema Seat judgment of rewards, talks about 1 Corinthians 3, 11, uh, 11 through 15. No man can lay a foundation except that which is of Jesus Christ, but be careful how you build, Paul says, on that foundation. So biblically speaking, the, the foundation is everything. Uh, living in the dallas area for around 10 years you know i've shared this before we would wake up in the morning in our house and there there would be just like a giant crack right through the wall that wasn't there the prior day and the problem wasn't the color of the wallpaper or the curtains or the carpet I mean, all of that was beautified in our house. And part of the reason it was beautified is I had nothing to do with it. My wife took care of all that. But in spite of the beauty of this house, what in the world is this crack doing in our wall? Well, if you know anything about the Dallas area, it's notorious for foundation problems. And that's why cracks appear. This is why there are cracks in the minds of most people concerning Jesus because satan has laid siege to the book of genesis he wants you to believe anything but the book of genesis believe in evolution believe in you know that moses you know really didn't write this as we have studied the velhausen documentary hypothesis believe that but believe anything except what it says because if you believe what it says you'll, you'll figure out real fast we're drowning By the way, the world has no explanation for this. We're around people that die constantly. Friends die, church members die, family members die. I remember my my cousin, very, very young, um, about, I don't know, a year, about two years behind me, was crying out to his mom. We were just little kids. We were on a trip together, crying out to his mom because she was, he was so upset that people die. And my aunt, who went to her grave as an agnostic, told him everything that was wrong. She did not give him the right solution to death. I mean, why do people die? Something as foundational as that Well, we have an answer to that in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3 is the answer. And if you understand that, then the solution to the whole thing makes perfect sense. But if the foundation is wrong, if the foundation is shaky, if the foundation is errant, I don't really care what you know about the book of Romans or the gospel of John or about the good news of Jesus, all of that stuff, you don't even see the need for it if you don't have an understanding of the book of Genesis so this area Maha Naim gets an explanation that the rest of scripture sort of builds upon which is common as we move through the book of Genesis so Jacob at this point begins to send a message to Esau and he begins by sending out messengers to Esau, verses 3 through 6. And so what we see here is the content of that message. We have the sending. Um, notice, if you will, verse 3. It says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, Edom is that area kind of south of the Dead Sea where Esau and his descendants settled. Um, that's where Mount Seir is. Um, do you notice as we're going through this that it really doesn't read like Veggie Tales? I mean, this is not Jack and the Beanstalk stuff. I mean, you're dealing with real people, real places, real geography. All these people that say Genesis is myth, I mean, it sure doesn't read that way to me. I mean, it looks to me like these are actual geographical areas and markers, you know, that you can validate and, and vindicate, much like in our missionary presentation we saw earlier, the mountains where Noah's ark, uh, landed. I mean, this stuff really happened that we're reading about here in scripture. But he, from the Jordan, east of the Jordan River, sends messengers to the area where Edom was, wanting to kind of test the waters to see if he can be made right with his brother, who for the past 20 years has wanted to murder him. You go down to the message of the messengers, verses 4 and 5. You have, first of all, a declaration, verse 4. He also also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Uh Uh-oh. That's the opposite of the patriarchal blessing. Remember what God said before Jacob ever went to Haran? All the way back in genesis twenty five twenty three the older shall serve the younger. Remember what God said in genesis twenty seven twenty nine be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Remember what God said in genesis twenty seven verse thirty seven behold, I have made him your master and all his relatives I have given to him as servants. The blessing went, you recall, to Jacob, not Esau. The younger, or the older rather, Esau, will serve the younger. God reversed what was normal. Jacob, when he calls Esau Lord, does not really seem to be... Standing on the promises of God. He seems to be operating out of fear. He refers to himself as a servant there in verse four. He also commanded them saying, thus you shall say to my lord Esau. Here Jacob is instructing his servants before they go to Mount Seir Edom. Thus says your servant Jacob. Now here Jacob is calling himself a servant when God said it's the opposite through the patriarchal blessing, as we've studied, that went to Jacob. What's Jacob doing here? He, he's operating out of fear. He is operating out of fear of man. And when you start operating out of a fear of man, you're not going to make good decisions. Remember uh, the nation of Israel? Later in biblical history, they crossed the Red Sea. God drowned the pursuing Egyptians. They went to Mount Sinai, received the law of God, and according to Deuteronomy chapter 1, they had an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai into the land of Canaan. 11 days and it's yours. The whole land. And they got there to the southern border of Can- Canaan at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they looked into the land, and what did they see in the land? They they saw giants. And they went into fear. In fact, Numbers 13, verses 32 and 33, tells you what was going on in their heads. Uh, It says in verse 33, Numbers 13, There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. Look at this now. And we became like, simile, comparing two things with the linking like or as. We became like grasshoppers. Were they grasshoppers? No, they weren't. But we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. That's what the Bible says. This is how a whole generation lost Canaan. What could have been a journey of 11 days turned into a forty-year nightmare for these people, as God just said, "I'm done with y'all." he He's not saying y'all are going to hell because if you say that, then Moses went to hell because he was part of that generation. Moses didn't enter either. We clearly know Moses is in heaven. he's uh, one of the, the he appears along with Elijah, remember on the Mount of Transfiguration. What they lost was a blessing they could have had because they were afraid. And who were they afraid of? They were afraid of man. They became like grasshoppers in their own sight. And so we were in their sight. You know, I guess hindsight's 2020, but they could have said to themselves, you know what, God just like parted the Red Sea. And destroyed all the Egyptians. He's provided for us the whole way to Mount Sinai. He's given us his law. Eleven days and we're in. No problem. Let's just keep trusting the Lord. But they stopped because their eyes were taken off God and turned instead into their enemies. And how little they felt compared to their enemies. Well, your enemies really aren't that big compared to God. But if you're doing a one-to-one comparison, you're going to start feeling really small. And as you start feeling really small, you're going to move into fear. And as you move into fear, you can't make good decisions, the Bible says. Isn't this the whole problem with Peter? Peter? Matthew 14, 28 through 33, it says, But Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, this is Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, walking on the Sea of Galilee, and I've actually been to the Sea of Galilee, and you can actually take a trip across the Sea of Galilee on a boat. And when I figured out how much they charged for the trip, I figured out why Jesus walked. But anyway, <laughs> I got to keep you awake somehow. But Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. This is why um, I we so identify with Peter. He 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 wanted to do the right thing. I mean, no one else said that, but he said it. Hey, let me walk out there with you. And he, that's Jesus, said to Peter, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. Wow. And came towards Jesus. I wish the story ended there. Because verse 30 says, But seeing the wind, he became frightened. He began to sink. He cried out to the Lord, save me. Everything is fine <laughs> Until you get to verse 30, because in verses 28 and 29, he's looking at Jesus. No problem. But the moment his eyes are taken off Jesus onto the storm, the wind and the waves, is the moment he started to see himself as a grasshopper in his own sight. And he began to sink. Lord, save me. I love the grace of Jesus here. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little abilities, doesn't say that. You of the wrong personality, temperament. The whole issue is faith. You're either going to trust God or you're not. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly the Son of God. Good, good guess there on that. Good, but, uh, and this is sort of what you see Jacob doing. He's, um, seems like he's intimidated to me. He's not even calling himself by the right name. He's calling himself by servant when the patriarchal blessing was the opposite. He's calling his brother Lord when Jacob was the one that received the, the, the patriarchal blessing as we've studied it. So he's really not walking on the basis of promises. He's walking on the basis of sight. He sort of describes his sojourn, verse 4, He also commanded them saying, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. So it's been 20 years in Haran, 14 years acquiring two wives, six additional years working for his uncle Laban when Laban had changed his wages 10 times. When it says it changed his wages 10 times, it's not talking there about a raise. (laughs) It's pushing him downward financially. And yet, in spite of all of these things, Jacob describes his wealth. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks. He's trying to communicate to Esau through his messengers. I have oxen, I have donkey, I have flocks, I have female, uh, I have male and I have female servants. Jacob became wealthy despite being oppressed for 20 years. How do you work for someone for 20 years who lies to you, um, cheats you, lowers your wages ten times, and you still prosper? How how exactly does that work? I mean, why is this information even here? I mean, why do I need to know as a Bible reader about about his oxen and donkeys and flocks? Because it's showing that Jacob prospered because he had a covenant from God. God, all the way back in Genesis 12, gave to Abraham, and these promises are passed on to Isaac, and then those promises are passed on to Jacob, received at least eight promises unconditionally. God said in Genesis 12, verse 2, to the patriarch Abram, I will make you great and I will bless you. It doesn't say I will bless you if your employer does the right thing. God is blessing Jacob in spite of his employer, who's doing the wrong thing. Because Jacob has something from God which is very special. This is how the nation of Israel started. This is why these things are being narrated for us. He has a covenant, not Jacob making a covenant to God, but God making a covenant to Jacob which is unilateral and unconditional. That's how a man living outside of his own neighborhood, so to speak, can become wealthy in spite of someone over him cheating him and ripping him off. What does Romans chapter 8, verse 31 say? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I'm here to tell you, folks, as a Christian, God is on your side. He is for you. If God is for you, then there's no need to live in fear that he's against you. As Jacob sort of finishes out this message that he wants these messengers to communicate to Esau, notice just the second part of verse 5, and we'll stop here. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed with him until now. Jacob, what he's doing in his own way is he's seeking Esau's favor. There's a lot of people that are like that with the Lord. They're seeking God's favor. They do the religious thing to somehow make God happy. I'll do some New Year's resolutions, hopefully, and God will smile on me. I'm here to tell you folks that as a Christian, you already have God's favor. Do You know why you have God's favor? Because God, through the person of Jesus Christ, has taken his righteousness, which is a perfect standard, and he's transferred it to you at the point of faith. Doctrine called imputation, transfer. Martin Luther, Luther, the church reformer, called it the great exchange. In a nanosecond, there's an exchange that happens when I place my faith in Christ. My unrighteousness is is exchanged for his righteousness. Sometimes people, when they describe this doctrine uh, justification, they undersell it dramatically. And they say justification means just as if I've never sinned. That's not what the doctrine says. God is not reducing you to zero, just as if you never sinned. He's taken his righteousness and transferred it to you. So this is not reduced back to zero. This is a massive addition. You see the difference? Paul the Apostle explains this probably better than anyone can. He says in Philippians 3, verse 10, and may be found in Him. Folks, I'm not, I'm not planning on standing before God one day in my own self-righteousness, which isn't going to get me very far anyway. I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Self-righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, watch this, which comes from God. In other words, Jesus' righteousness is transferred to me at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. I'm not reduced to zero, just as if I've never sinned. I'm I'm weighing the positive category, infinitely so. Jesus' righteousness is transferred to me. You have to understand that the man that wrote this, the Apostle Paul, before he was saved, spent his whole life trying to make himself right with God as a Pharisee. I mean, of, of all the things the Pharisees had to do, Paul in this chapter says, I followed it meticulously. I recognize that it was scuba, dung, manure at the end of the day. And I now have the righteousness which comes from God. Not my own righteousness. Righteousness that comes from God. Well, how do you get it? It's the end of verse 9. Which comes from God on the basis of faith. To get it, you trust God for it. To get it, you hear the promise and you believe it. I mean, you're crazy enough to believe what God said. Meaning you put your trust in it and in a nanosecond, he takes the righteousness of Jesus and transfers it to you. So positionally speaking, God looks at you as if you're just as righteous as his son. Do you realize that as a Christian? That's what you have? That when God looks at you, He looks at you as if you're just as pure as Jesus. Which means in prayer, we don't go before God, you know, groveling and crawling over broken glass. We go into the throne room of God, Hebrews 4, with boldness. See, if I was um, operating on my own self-righteousness, I'd be very intrepid in prayer. But not when I understand this doctrine of imputation. Something that Jacob is trying to get from Esau. Something that we don't have to try to get from God. He gives it to us unilaterally. By the way, folks, don't hold out for a better offer. (laughs) And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you're listening online watching online, listening after the fact, you've never trusted in Christ as Savior. As the Spirit of God convicts men and women of their need to do this, our exhortation is to put your trust in Jesus for your salvation and the safekeeping of your soul. Don't trust in your own good works. Trust in the good work He did for you 2,000 years ago. And just like that, in a nanosecond, you're made right with the God that, that made you. We'll pick it up uh, with Jacob next week because the messengers are going to return and they're going to say Esau is coming with 400 people. Ooh, it sounds like war to me. So we've got a little bit more panic palace that Jacob has to work through. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for your church. I do pray, Lord, that if anybody is ambiguous about their own eternal destiny that they might perhaps communicate to me or some of our church leaders um, after the service so that we can help them understand better the good news of jesus christ we'll be we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory we ask these things in jesus name and god's people said